we've been uh, working through a series called Unveiled Faces, as you all know. And today I'm going to be talking about worship in the context of that. And um, so I just want to put up a little definition. So this is, uh, first of all, the, the scripture we've been working at, which is Second uh, Corinthians 3.18, which says, We all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So as we contemplate God, as we see God, as we understand his glory, his goodness, his wonder, um, that leads us um, to worship. And so I just want us to think just very briefly about what worship is, what it really is about. And a little dictionary definition of worship would say that it's reverent honor and homage paid to God or a secret personage, because this is from the dictionary, or, or to any object regarded <coughs> as sacred, formal, uh, or ceremonious rendering of such honor and homage, they attended worship this morning, adoring, reverence, or regard. So we see that worship uh, can be towards God, but it could be towards another God. It could be towards an object that's regarded as sacred. It could be towards a number of different things. Uh, and that's very important, as we'll see when we go on, because actually it turns out that whilst we were made and designed to worship God, there are a lot of other things out there which are competing for our worship. When it comes to worship of God uh, and giving glory and honor to him, we encounter his holiness, we encounter his presence, and that revelation of God's nature should lead us to worship. He's holy, he is love, he is gracious, he is merciful. All the characteristics of God, when we experience them, when we know them, when we see them, we return worship to him. Uh, and so we do that through singing, which we have done this morning. And that's a wonderful and sacred thing that we partake in. And we partake in it as well as community. And so we have this communal experience of, of worshiping God. But worship fundamentally goes far beyond singing. And it's very important that, that we, we see that. Um, so I'll put up a little quote, I think, that helps uh, to make sense. Well, that's, this is from a guy called William Temple, and it says, To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God. And so we see these things, uh, mind, imagination, heart, and will, this is a very holistic, this is all who I am and what I'm about and how I relate to the world and how I live, that actually, as I encounter God, God breaks in and changes and transforms me and more and more of my life becomes about worship because the encounter of God changes us. It changes the way we think, it changes the way we act, how we live. But a lot of the time that isn't really our experience. All of life isn't worship. <clears throat> and in fact, unfortunately, sometimes the only thing that, that really seems to be worship in our lives is, is what we do on a Sunday morning or another time when we're singing songs. And it all went wrong pretty quickly, pretty early on. Um, and uh, I'm gonna look at that a little bit. I'm gonna have the help of these two people who um, seem to be followed around strategically by bushes. Any pictures or photographs on them? <laughs> I just, you know, part of me can't help but wonder, like, like, were these bushes employed in the Garden of Eden to, like, follow 
Adam and Eve around just to keep their dignity. Um, I don't think that's the case. Um, but what went, what went wrong starts here. As we see, Adam's blaming Eve. He's blaming the snake. The snake doesn't have anybody else to blame. Um, and so we find that in Genesis chapter 3. You can follow along in your Bibles a bit. I'm going to do just a couple of verses from Genesis and a few others from, from the Old Testament as we look at this theme. But it says, Now the snake was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die which god actually didn't say it in that exact way but anyway um you will certainly not die the snake said to the woman for god knows that when you eat from it your eyes will be opened and you will be like god knowing good and evil when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom she took some and ate it she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And so we see that, that what Satan actually does is that he appeals to the desire within humanity to know more. And that desire was placed there actually by God because God created Adam and Eve. He created them in his image and he created them to know him. So he created them with a the desire to know. And so the devil takes that desire for more. And he says, you know, you'll be like God. You'll be like God. Um, and so there's this desire. You're, you're going to find out more. You're going to know more. Um, and even we, we see here what Eve says, that um, you know, the fruit was desirable to the eye, but also for gaining wisdom. So again, it, it appeals to their desires. Uh, and Satan uses the same temptation for us that he was tempted with himself was to know more and therefore to be like God. You'll be like God. And of course, Satan wanted to be like God. He wanted to receive the worship that God was receiving. And something in us wants to worship, wants to worship God, to know him. And we were designed for that. But when sin entered the world, worship gets messed up. Wanting to be like God, mankind wants to put itself in the place of God and therefore to be the object of worship rather than to be the worshippers. Uh, this is a brilliant quote um, from uh, Sinclair. Oh, no, it's not. Ah, it is. So it should say, instead of Blaise Pascal, it should say Sinclair B. Ferguson. Okay, I never got around to changing that. <clears throat> For worship is essentially the reverse of sin. Sin began and begins when we succumb to the temptation, you shall be as gods. We make ourselves the center of the universe and dethrone God. By contrast, worship is giving God his true worth. It is acknowledging him to be the Lord of all things and the Lord of everything in our lives. He is indeed the most high God. And so... Sin messes that up. We become and want to be the object of worship. We want to be the center of the universe. It becomes all about us when it was always supposed to be all about God. And in fact, in it all being about God, we find our rightful place and our designed place within the universe. And when that got messed up through sin, 
when we got detached from God, what we found was that we could never find fulfillment, that we were always looking for more, that there's, there's never enough in our lives. And uh, I've quoted this before recently, I think, anyway, but this is actually from Blaise Pascal. And he said, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once a man at, in, true, in man of true happiness, of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. Though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. And this is where it all falls down, but also where there is hope. There's a space, a void, and so what we talk about um, is that God-shaped box, that, that thing that's within us that we cannot fill with anything because we were designed, that, that God-shaped box, if you like, was designed to find fulfillment in God, in relationship, in worship to God. And when we can't find that, we go out and we, we seek other things and other people and other stuff. And in fact, we raise ourselves up to become objects of worship just to try and fill that void that is inside of us. But if we go back before the fall, before what we read about <coughs> the snake and the apple, we see um, we have a few clues to the way worship should really, really look. And we find that when man was in right relationship with God. And two things I want to highlight to you is this. Is that Adam was commissioned by God. The Lord God placed a man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. And so we were given purpose from the beginning of time to go and to be involved in creation, to grow and develop and to do things. And, and so in that, that becomes, when we're in right relationship with God, worship. So Adam and Eve are doing the things that God has called them to do. They're behaving in a way that brings worship and glory and honor to God because that's what they were created for, was to do the will of God. We also see that Adam and Eve walked with God. And so we get a glimpse of this, unfortunately, when, when things have gone wrong. What we read, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I, I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. <clears throat> but if we, if we look at the start of this, what we're seeing is that there was a normal expectation that Adam and Eve would walk in the garden with God, that they would be there in his presence. And so we have Adam and Eve living in, in the, if you like, the Garden of Eden with purpose to create and to develop, to steward the things that God has given them. We have Adam and Eve walking naturally with God. And this started a bit of a thought process in my mind. And I thought, you know, I don't think Adam and Eve did worship the way we do worship. I don't think they got together and said, right, Adam, it's your turn to play the guitar. I'm going to sing. I'm going to do four songs. Uh, and then oh, maybe have we break. Or maybe we'll push it and we'll go for five. Um, I don't think worship looked like that necessarily for them. In fact, I don't think that they really thought about worshiping God. And I think that's very different from us. See, what happens, if you contrast that to us, is that we go from 
the activity of our normal everyday lives. And for one reason or another, whether it's something we've organized or a revelation that we receive, we go, oh, I'm going to stop what I'm doing right now. I'm going to worship God. I'm going to declare his greatness and his wonder and, and everything like that. And so we, we go from our activity to worship. And I don't think Adam and Eve did that. I don't think Adam and Eve ever thought about worship. Because I think they lived in an infinitely different reality to us where everything that they were, who they were, were what they did, it was all worship. So they're, they're tending the garden, they're, they're doing all these things, they're doing it to the glory and honour of God because they know that they're created by him, they're in relationship with him. There's no, there's no divide, there's no blockage. At all times they are aware of the presence and goodness of God and in response to the presence of God they do naturally what we do sporadically. Everything was worship to Adam and Eve. That was just normal everyday life. And so we have to see that, that in response to God's holiness, what happens is this. Adam and Eve responded to God's holiness through the lens of wholeness. We tend to respond to God's holiness through the lens of our brokenness. It's a massive difference. Because we, we, we go, oh God, look at the mess of my life and I'm so sinful, I'm so bad. Oh my goodness, you're so amazing, you're so wonderful. But because of what Jesus has done at the cross, we're able to go, God, you are amazing. And I'm so rubbish and I'm so terrible. And we're missing something in that. I think we need to get closer to the reality of what we see in Adam and Eve. Is that we, Because we've been changed and transformed. The spirit of the living God is within us. We're, we're presented as holy in God's sight. And so therefore we come as people made in the image of God. We come with confidence before the throne of grace and we declare God's praises and we worship him. Uh, but as time goes on, <coughs> after the Garden of Eden, this happens. And this is really important too. And what we see in, in the Tower of Babel, I'll just read the story very briefly, but what I want us to see is that, that man becomes the object of worship. It is man's desire to lift himself up and mankind's desire to lift themselves up to present themselves as great and wonderful. And so they do that in a very visual way. So this is from Genesis 11. Uh, at one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylon and settled there. And there they began to build this great big tower. And they said, come Let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the earth. Who is the object of worship now? It's us. We want to lift ourselves up. We want to be great. And, and then God comes and he confuses their language. And so um, that's why it's called Babel. This word Babel is the confusion that came over them as God uh, moved and they spoke different languages and so they abandoned this desire. Uh, and it's interesting that um, it, it says, uh, the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower, the people that, that were building it. He said, look, these people are united and they all speak the same language. After this, after this, nothing they set out to do would be impossible for them. 
And I used to think that that meant like God was a wee bit worried about them. You know, like flip, they're going to get so big for their boots, you know, that they're going to become like really powerful and strong, like as if like nothing's impossible for them. But I think it probably in the light of the fact that they're sinful, it's like nothing when it comes to sin is going to be impossible for them. And in fact, in constantly reaching for the sky and constantly trying to, to raise themselves up, nothing's ever going to be enough. And the destructive path that that would lead them on, nothing is going to be impossible. Nothing is going to be too depraved. Nothing is going to be too messed up for them to do in order to lift themselves up. When people lift themselves up, it's nearly always on the back of other people, isn't it? Because brokenness is always there. And so in, in the Tower of Babel, we see this, this physical picture of what it looks like for man to raise himself up, but it's never enough. It's never enough. And um, as we go on then in, in history, God starts to reveal himself to, to people, to a people group, to a nation, and then we have Moses and the law. And what's interesting about Moses and the law, so just skip through the Genesis bit, is that when the Ten Commandments are given, it starts with this. I am the Lord your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You shall have no other God but me. You must not make for yourself any idol or any kind of an image of anything in the heavens or in the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. And so God brings his people to himself and, and he says, you know, I am, I am God. I'm the one that, that's worthy of worship. And so there should be no other gods, no other gods before me. And that's not, that's not before me as in like God always has to be first and then other things can come second or third. No other gods before me as in in his sight and in your sight there should be no other gods. And do not make any idols. The idol in those days was very often um, the physical representation of, of, the, of the gods of those days. And, and obviously we know what happens. <clears throat> Moses goes up, gets ten commandments. He's been there quite a while with God. And wouldn't you know, this happens. While he's away, the people say, um, when the people saw that Moses was uh, so long and coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Where's he gone? Don't know. I mean, he's led us out of Egypt, 10 plagues over the Red Sea. We're getting manna and we're getting um, you know, water. Everything's provided for us. But like, where's he gone? A couple of days and that's it. They're distracted. Aaron answered, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off the earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioned it with a tool. Then they said, he said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. And that's a polite word. I'll come back to that in a minute. <clears throat> so what you have is that after everything that God has done, these people 
after Moses, their leader, has disappeared for a while, go, we need something to worship. You know, they have this desire to worship. And, and what they, they look, when they look around at what they've come from in Egypt and the, the people groups around them, say, we need a really good statue to worship. Wouldn't that be great? Um, but what's going on here is quite subtle. We don't get this in our little kids' uh, stories, is that they haven't turned away from from God. They haven't turned away from the Lord to worship this idol. They've added this in. And I'll show you why, where you can see that. Um, tomorrow we will have a festival to the Lord. Uh, and what scholars reckon is that, that to help them because they couldn't see God, they wanted to have this other thing here. Uh, and the calf very often represents creation represents strength, that represents lots of things in the Eastern world. And in some ways, what they would have felt as well is that, that God would have come and actually rested on, resided on the, the back of the calf. And so they have this, this idol, they have the Lord, Yahweh, and, and then they also indulge in revelry, which is probably some kind of orgy, um, some kind of drunken orgy. And so what they've done is they've taken this vague understanding of God that they had up until that point, although they knew him in different ways through what he had done, they've taken what's been around them in civilization. Oh, they've got a golden calf, we'll have a golden calf. They get up to some weird kind of orgies and different things. Well, let's do that too, that's great. We'll stick all this together and this is how we're gonna worship God. And um, I don't think that that is too far off what happens with us sometimes. I think our desire is to worship the Lord God only. But at times we have these little gods, these little things, this other stuff in our lives, and we throw it into the mix too because it's easier. And we find our worth and our satisfaction in other little small G-gods, just as these people had done. And... Um, but there's something different about us. And there's something different about us that helps us to see God as he is, is this. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. You see, because of what Jesus did at the cross, we have the ability to worship God at a deep, deep, level where there's a connection within us between us and God the only other place that we see that is the Garden of Eden before Jesus comes along the only place we see it is the Garden of Eden where we would be at peace with God and focused and orientated around him because something within us has been changed and transformed and something within us is naturally permanently and increasingly connected with the living God let's just talk a little bit about our distractions. We have lots of counterfeit gods in our lives. And so this is a brilliant quote. And if you want to read an amazing book about counterfeit gods, this is it, Tim Keller's Counterfeit Gods. And he says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. 
then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. That's tough, isn't it? There are things in our lives that we go to to ascribe value and worth and significance to find security in. And the best thing that we can do to describe those is worship. And you see, many of those things are good. They're good within themselves. But how we view them, how we relate to them, isn't. So we need to be able to start identifying what these idols are, what these counterfeit things are. And the thing about counterfeit is it has a desire to mimic the authentic. And one of my favorite movies is this one. It's called Catch Me If You Can. Okay, so anybody that was zoning out, you're now back in the room because we're talking about something that's within your culture. All right? And also, Leonardo DiCaprio is on the screen. So, this is one of my favorite movies, and it tells a story. Leonardo DiCaprio plays this guy called Frank Abagnale Jr. If you haven't seen this movie, it's definitely in my top 10. Um, But he plays this kid back in the 60s. He's 15 or 16 years old, and... um, He wants to make something of himself. And he sees one day an airline pilot walking along with the uniform on. And he thinks, wow, I want to be like that. Look at that guy. He's important. He's significant. He has value. He has worth. And there's air hostesses hanging off his arm like this. (laughs) And he thinks, yeah, you know, if I can get to that point in life... And so he completely, he goes and he steals a, an airline uniform uh, and, and he learns all the lingo and he blags his way onto um, airplanes. And there's a, a, a spur seat on a lot of planes that there was in those days. And there was an agreement between airlines that you could fly and use that spur seat if you were a pilot. So he would basically pretend he was a pilot and fly all around the country um, all the time on these spur seats. And not only that, um, but he got the hold of a check from one of the airlines and he started to forge, started to copy them. And so he started to make himself a lot of money. So he had money, he had success, he had status within society. And um, this was brilliant, but then obviously the FBI catch on to him and they start um, chasing him around. But in the movie, and it is also true in real life, not only he isn't happy with that because it doesn't fill that void that Blaise Pascal talked about. So... He goes and he impersonates a doctor. And he gets a job in an ER ward, which is really frightening because at this stage he's 16 or 17 years old pretending to be a doctor in an ER ward. There's a great clip in the movie where, where like somebody's like really, really sick and ill and he just says to all these junior doctors, hmm, what do you think we should do? Because he doesn't have a clue. He is not a doctor. And later on, he, uh, he meets a lawyer and he thinks, wow, Those lawyers, you know, they have status and they have credibility and everybody thinks they're brilliant. Oh, I'm a lawyer, he says, and um, he blags his way to become a lawyer. Now, in actual reality, he goes and sits the bar exam for the state in which he lived in at the time, and he actually passes the exam. He studies for weeks and weeks, fails it twice, gets it the third time. Um, But what you see is this person who wants to be worth something. He wants to find value. He wants other people to look at him and, if you like, worship him. And he sees the gods of our society and our culture in money, success, power, achievement. 
and he thinks, if only I had this, I would be happy. At the end of the movie, you find out that he's not particularly happy. He ends up in prison, and actually Frank Abagnale Jr. tours the world now. He worked for the FBI for years, um, tours the world now as a, as a speaker. But in his life, you see an exaggerated form of what very often happens to us, is that we seek to find worth and value in other things. In, in whatever it is that we view as to be successful, so we pursue our career to the point where we think, if I can make this, then I'll be happy. We pursue finances. And do you remember back in the days of um, when the economy was doing really well, and we used to all tell each other how much our houses were worth? And then the market crashed, and none of us ever told anybody how much our houses were worth. Because there was something in kind of saying, I've got stuff, I've got things, I've made it. There's a value and a worth that I'm attaching to this, to me. But it's taken the place of God in our lives. Uh, and so these things, this is where it becomes quite difficult, is that these things are not bad within themselves. It's just the place that they occupy in our hearts becomes bad. Uh, and the last thing that we should do is to say, you know, we shouldn't seek too much education because then we'll just get wrapped up in this, or we shouldn't have things because, you know, our value will get attached in the, that. You know, God created us to learn, to live, to grow, to develop, but all within the context, back to the Garden of Eden, of being in perfect relationship with him so that we can enjoy those things, so we can celebrate our achievements so we can um, look at other people and think, isn't it brilliant how they've done okay and, and that's great and that's wonderful. That we can celebrate and enjoy all those things. But our true worship comes from God and him alone. So could it be... So I'll, I'll just cover, cover a few things before we finish. Um, but I just wanted to say that... that when we find ourselves in a place of worship, everything else falls into its right place. When we see God in other people, actually this can be one of the places where we find worship. When was the last time our worship involved thanking God for another person, who they are, what they do, celebrating what we can see of them, of Jesus in them? When was the last time our worship looked like that? You see, we're so insecure that we can't look to other people or to other circumstances, to other situations, to other churches, to other countries and celebrate what God is doing there because we don't have it here. And that's a real challenge to us. And I would say as well that we live in a society and a world that is constantly trying to fill that God-shaped box and we get caught up in the momentum of that as well. We live in a consumeristic society. We live in a society that's constantly busy, that's constantly stressed, that's constantly seeking the next thing. And I think if we're going to be true worshippers, we've got to disentangle ourselves from that. We've got to slow down. We've got to be able to look at things and judge them for what they are, where the true worth and their true value is. These words from Matthew then start to speak to us, and this is from the message version, and it says, 
Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Or maybe in place of religion, we could say burned out on consumerism, burned out in trying to prove our worth through our jobs, burned out in trying to seek success. <coughs> Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Isn't that what we want? That we live in a stressed and hurried world. We live in a world where there's more stress and anxiety, when there's more people medicated because of that than there's ever been. And a lot of it comes from this insatiable desire to fill something that only God can fill. And we need to stop being like those people that, that orientated around the golden calf. We've got to recognize what those golden calves, what those idols are in our lives. And we've got to get rid of them. You should have no other gods before me. God didn't just say that because he knew that that was the way things should be. He knew it was good for us too. And so what I want to encourage you today to think is, what, what are the things that I'm just spending so much time and energy and stress trying to get? Who are the people I'm trying to impress? What is it that if it was taken away from me, my life would start to fall apart if I didn't have that? That job, that career, that house, whatever it is. Whatever that thing is, that if I took it away from you today and your life felt like it was falling apart, that's probably an idol in your life. But when we start to remove those things, rather than actually being robbed of something, we have room for someone. We have room for more of the presence of the living God. And in giving up those idols, there's space for us to encounter God, for us to know his love to know worth and to know value from him. And our spirit witnesses to his spirit and we, we find ourselves anchored completely in him, our worth and our value in him. We, we come into a new depth of worship, of seeing him as he is and glorifying him. We see him in other people and we give glory to God for, for what we see in other people. We see the world differently. We take a step back and we look at creation and the wonder of things around us and we give glory and thanks to God. And as we continue to step into that kind of life, we find ourselves maybe increasingly being in the place where Adam and Eve were, where we're living every day as an act of worship to God. That worship is not just something that we do. It becomes who we are. And God takes us deeper into this place of worship coming from who we are and so we realize that we've lived a whole day as an act of worship to God but we never once thought I'm going to worship God we actually do it we actually live it and that is what he has for us and I think now just as um, the band comes up we have a little bit of space and time just to really lean into that just to allow God to bring fresh revelation of himself to us that we would encounter him in a deeper way, that actually it's the encounter with the true God 
that makes the idols visible in our lives, but also makes our attachment to them start to break and start to fade away. So let's, let's stand and we'll, we'll just uh, worship for a while.